Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with us on the phone today is Fatima Kadablu, Principal Analyst at Forrester, to talk about the impact of the general data protection regulation coming out of Europe. Welcome, Fatima. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Fatima, let's ground ourselves in what GDPR, or as Victor referenced, the general data protection regulation is. Is one way to think about it that this is protection of European consumers and their data, and not necessarily a regulation on European companies? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, The GDPR doesn't discriminate based on a company's geography. Um, It's really designed to protect, as you say, European consumers, um, aka European subjects, and their data and the rights that they have as they use the free internet. That's an important concept of scope here because I'm sure upon its release or its first sort of presentation to the public, there is a sense of this is a European question. Therefore, if I have European operations, it affects me. If I don't, it doesn't affect me. But that's actually not the point. That's exactly right. All of our clients really need to be thinking about how GDPR is going to affect them because even if you don't have advertising or marketing targeted to European subjects, if you've got European citizens and subjects that are buying your products or services from Europe, you're shipping products to them, you're delivering products and services to them, you have to abide and be in compliance in T minus 365 days from now. So Fatima, what is this forcing companies to do? So I'll give you sort of the the six major um, things that GDPR requires companies to do, and then I'll tell you why it's so important that they actually do these things. So thing number one is data breach notifications. And we've talked quite a bit in the past couple of weeks on the What It Means podcast about security and, and breach Um, and cybersecurity issues. Um, But in this case, companies have only 72 hours to notify the authorities that they've had a data breach. And this is really, really hard to do for most companies because in 72 hours, most companies don't even know what's been breached. So that's one major um, difference. The next one is that European citizens have the right to be forgotten. And we've heard this term before, but now any European citizen can ask a company to delete all of the information that that company has about them when they close their accounts or stop doing business with that company. So you have to be able to provide evidence that you've done this. The next really big change is that there's no ambiguous consent. And what this means is, you know, when you sometimes go to a website and it says, you know, this website uses cookies. If you agree um, or if you proceed on this website, you're agreeing to that. That's not good enough anymore. Now companies have to make sure that a person checks that box before they can drop a cookie on the website or start collecting data about them. So that purpose where um, the different checkboxes and the different consent for the different kinds of use, that's the fourth major change that the law um, grants. Um, The fifth major issue here is that children have now a very explicit right to privacy. Um, And this is different from the previous version of, of the European laws because the countries can actually lower the age limit of consent 
to 13. So from a technology perspective, companies have to be able to um, positively verify that somebody is over the legal age for signing up for their service. And how do you do that for a 13-year-old? The sixth major change here is that um, companies aren't the only ones liable for these privacy violations and requirements. Data processors and data controllers, um, these are the companies like agencies or data brokers, um, cloud service providers who are storing or processing data on their client's behalf also have joint liability for these infractions. And remember, it's not just about personal information anymore. This also includes things like device IDs and browser cookie data. So it's a really big change to say, hey, agency, you now um, share liability with me in case we both do something wrong with European citizen data. Now, the reason that this stuff matters is because the law actually gives the authorities sharp teeth when it comes to fines. So minor violations of the law are up to 2% of a company's global revenues. Major violations are up to 4% of a company's global revenues. So we'll visit these one by one. I guess as an observation, Fatima, this this sends a cold chill to the market that's increasingly dependent on and fueled by data. This has far-reaching, high-cost, high-consequence implications. It sure does. Um, And those implications aren't just about the the handling of the data. They're about things like user experience. How do you as a brand design a user experience when you've got to get, you know, every person who comes to your website to check a box for nine different uses of of consumer data? Fatima, why don't we go back and look at this on a point-by-point basis? So the first point was the notification of the data breach itself. And as you pointed out, some people don't know that they've been breached. And when they do, they don't really understand the magnitude, the significance. And at a, you know, within a 72-hour period, holding accountable that they know at the individual level, the nature of the breach seems extraordinarily onerous and well outside the existing processes, tools, and expectations of most companies on a worldwide basis. That's exactly right. Um, 72 hours, most, most companies are just starting to figure out that there has been a breach. Um, They don't know the extent of it. They don't know the depth of it. um, And they don't know the the sort of entry points or whether they've actually successfully been able to block any further breaches. So there's there's a big implication here, not just from an incident response perspective, but really from a brand resilience perspective. If you are are having to report to the authorities and to the public that you've had a breach, but gee, shucks, we don't know much more than that. And then you have to sort of keep updating um, every so often with, okay, now we know how many records have been breached. And now we know which consumers are likely to have been affected. Um, There's a long tail of publicity that we don't see today in, in modern breach response. So on point number two, which is the concept of a customer being forgotten, I mean, at face value, it makes sense, but in, for most companies, the reality is that customer data sits in multiple systems. So it's not forgotten from one system. It's understand that the presence of that customer data sits in many different systems, the systems of records, it might be a systems of insight, it might be actually systems of, in, systems of engagements. How do companies get their head around the idea that they understand what data they have and then actually get to some form of certification that indeed it is now a f- forgotten data? 
Yeah, you have hit the nail on the head. Um, this is one of the biggest things that companies have to get their arms around. Um, and this is the idea of, of data flows and data audits. So in order to be able to prove that you have successfully deleted every bit of data that you have about me, um, you've got to know where it sits. You've got to know which data processors and data controllers have access to it. And you've got to be able to prove that you got rid of that data. So, yes, to your point, um, every single company that deals with European subject data needs to actually have a data audit in place. They need to understand um, what data they're sending to which third-party vendors for what purposes and make sure that they've got a chain of command um, that that ensures that you let that third party know Fatima Catablu has requested to be forgotten. Please delete all information about her from your records. So Fatima, let's talk about that third point, the opting in that consumers need to do now. So when you visit a website today, there's sort of a notification, right, that this website uses cookies and you simply X out of it. So are you saying with GDPR... Companies will have to notify the consumers differently or they'll have to click a box, opt in, and then be able to X out? What will that look like? All right. So, Jen, let's combine actually points three and four, which are both around cookie and consent. So, um, to your point, this isn't about notifications anymore. It's not enough to just have the box that's pre-checked or to tell people that you're going to be dropping cookies. You have to get explicit permission in order to drop a cookie or track, you know, device IDs. Um, and that, that consent has to be for each specific use. So imagine that you're using one web cookie for uh, web analytics. You are using some ad tracking cookies and, you know, you're using another cookie to do personalization on the checkout page. Each one of those is technically a different purpose, and so you have to get permission for each of them. And this is a huge change, both from a user experience perspective and a design perspective, as well as from a sort of data governance perspective. Yeah, I, I'm a bit speechless on, on this one in particular because I don't think consumers realize how many cookies are dropped on websites and the fact that uh, as an organization, you need to expose that now. There's, a, there's an interesting carve-out within the GDPR for what's called legitimate use. Um, and so the idea here is that if there are things that you're doing on your site uh, or within your app that are, um, you know, just for the purposes of being able to run your business and they're not really collecting user data, that those are okay. But to kind of make this even more complicated, there's another law that comes into effect on the same day as the GDPR called the e-privacy regulation, and that doesn't provide these legitimate use carve-outs at the moment. So, um, yeah, it's going to be really messy and really confusing for consumers, um, and how they how they react and respond to these checkboxes is, is sort of anybody's guess right now. So I'm going to go from the what appears to be very severe to this thing that seems like it's common sense, which is the special rules for children, which is your fifth point. Yeah, the the interesting thing about about the children's right to privacy law here is um, we've had fairly ubiquitous 
different kinds of laws globally for children's um, protection online. But this one's really tough because how do you actually confirm and verify the age of a child? Uh, you know, there's no mechanism for saying, okay, upload your driver's license to confirm your age or anything like that. Um, and if you, if you don't have the minor's permission, you have to get it from the parent. So this is going to get really complex for lots of online services that are actually available to children. You know, Facebook and Instagram, for instance, have, um, have 13 years old as their kind of approved age for kids to create accounts. But in a country where that age is, is you know, has to be verified, how are they going to do that? So the last point is the one that, that caught my attention because it felt a little bit like the early phases of a trade war or some international tax, which is the hit on the data and the data processors because that's actually embedded into the business model and very very specifically embedded into the large U.S. international companies. Um, that seems a little bit more in the trade war international tax world. So Fatima, can you walk through that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, imagine that you are um, the CMO of a multinational um, and you've hired an agency to run a campaign for you in Europe. And that agency comes to a North American data broker to find audiences and then uses um, a North American ad-serving platform or data management platform to, uh, you know, find those audiences online and target them. We're talking about five or six different actors in that one campaign, and each one of those has some liability for a data protection or data privacy violation. To your point, this is very much a, a focus on North American technology companies who have, you know, something of, of, a, of an oligopoly, if you will, um, in a lot of the, the um, areas that they function, whether it's, it's data brokerage or audience targeting, that sort of thing. The European authorities are saying, look, it, you have to, A, be able to tell us who each of those five or six actors in that campaign were, and B, each one of those five or six, there's some liability for a violation, doesn't matter which which part of the chain or the campaign that violation happened in, if they're party to it, they're potentially liable. And you're exactly right. It's a way for the European regulators to ensure a more open market in Europe where some of these ad tech and martech um, uh, types of services and vendors are concerned. So this feels like an expansive set of regulations. How do they fund this so that they're actually able to enforce it? Oh, well, you just asked the golden question, Victor. The GDPR is self-funded, which means that the enforcement authorities, the more violations they levy and the more fines they levy, the more money they have to work with. So there's a lot of incentive for them to actually enforce against these new laws. I mean, this is the proverbial policeman who has a revenue goal for handing out tickets, who just sits there and tries to pick up cars one by one. It's, it's our most cynical view of regulators. It absolutely is. And it really, it's, it's so difficult to get your arms around because to most of us, certainly in North America and any multinational businesses, it feels so counterintuitive and counterproductive to innovation in the Internet and innovation with data. So we'll have to wait and see what the regulators really start to chase down here. But 
we don't think there's going to be any holdbacks or any sort of pulling punches where enforcement's concerned. There's a part of this conversation that sort of does the collective holy cow, sort of the, the deep breath of the magnitude of this. But, I mean, to your point, this is going to be the reality in 365 days. What is your take on the readiness of firms to take this on? Yeah, it runs the gamut. So we've got some clients who've actually called us. I, I had a an inquiry not too long ago with a travel and hospitality client who said, hey, so, you know, we're a North American-based travel vendor. Um, we, we've talked to our lawyers about this, and they've said we don't have to worry about it because we don't advertise or market in Europe. And I said, well, have you ever sold a German citizen a plane ticket while they were in Germany um, and coming to the States to do some travel? And they said, well, certainly we have. And I said, and you've probably used a German credit card, and you, by all accounts, should have known that that was a German credit card. And they said, well, yes. And I said, well, then you're liable. So you've got that end of the spectrum of readiness, where even within within some companies, their own legal teams don't really understand what they're liable for, all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And these are the financial services companies, um, the, the insurance companies in Europe, primarily based in Europe, um, who said, yeah, we are aggressively preparing for GDPR. And in fact, we're going to use our GDPR preparedness and compliance, early compliance, as a competitive differentiator. We're going to talk about the ways that we protect user data. We're going to talk about the ways that we get consent and, and protect uh, and respect customer data. So it really does run the gamut, I would say, that far right end spectrum of people being really ready, 5% of our clients. The other end, probably 20% of our clients, and the rest of them sort of distributed in the middle there. So Fatima, if 5% are ready for GDPR, what do the 95% have to go do? You know, the biggest thing is to just start talking about it and to get the right people in the room. Um, we have started to do that at Forrester. We've actually got our own team going and making sure that we're going to be ready for GDPR. You can't do this without your product people and your marketing people and your security and risk people and your BT leaders and your lawyers. You've got to put all these people in a room together who don't traditionally work together and actually build a, a game plan and a roadmap for compliance. You have to figure out where all of your data sits, to Victor's earlier point. You've got to be able to track data flows, figure out who's storing what, who's helping you process what, and what they're doing with that data. You have to make sure that all of the things you are doing with the data are within the, the guardrails of GDPR. And the biggest thing, the biggest thing, is figuring out how to get your data ready for May 25th, 2018. There's no grandfather clause for the GDPR. So you have to opt in everyone that you don't have an, an affirmative opt-in for. You have to go through all of these steps to make sure that the data that you have collected so far is compliant with GDPR standards. We've had a number of conversations about one of the disruptive forces that is coming to the B2C and B2B markets is the role of digital platforms, which will serve to advantage those that can build a platform and build the most effective or productive ecosystems. Um, 
in, in those discussions, we really didn't talk about the implications of privacy, but it, to your point on the competitive advantage, it appears like part of the mix here is who can actually run a digital platform in, you know, coherent to the GDPR requirements. That is so true. Um, I, I talked to a lot of our vendor clients about their posture and positioning on GDPR. And even there, there's a really broad spectrum. But there are many of them in the European markets who have had a hard time competing for multinational business and North American business who are now saying, look, we're a European-based ad tech vendor or European MarTech vendor, and we're going to come out ahead of this thing and be able to compete with sort of the big five marketing clouds um, in a different way. And we're going to help our clients, you know, take on the GDPR compliance issue um, and, and be ready for it when it hits. So I think we're going to see more of that positioning in the market. And I think we're going to see multinational marketers specifically um, start to look at a different set and different pool of vendors to support their needs. So we're at a place in time right now, Fatima, where... If you look at it from a number of different vectors, you have a new technology revolution introducing technologies like Internet of Things, which is more systems collecting and applying customer data. You have the emergence of digital platforms to which the customer data itself operates as a necessary currency of those platforms. You have a hyper risk of, of cybersecurity, which we went through with Jeff Pollard last week. And in comes this privacy, small little set of tasks so as you sit back and look at sort of the consequence of this, what does it all mean to you? The big thing that I'm thinking about now is how do you design your data collection practices um, to be compliant with GDPR? Um, there's a term and a, and a practice called privacy by design. And it's one of the things that companies have to start embracing. And that means that as you think about your IoT strategy, it means as you think about your um, your systems of insight, that every single vendor that you work with or, or data collection strategy or, or algorithm that you write, every single one of these things has to be designed with privacy in mind. And that's a big sea change for most companies. So putting somebody you know, in place in your organization, a data protection officer is what the EU regulators recommend, um, putting somebody in place that has the responsibility and has some enforcement authority within your organization to say, we are okay to do this, we are not okay to do that. Really, really important and one of the, the, the big sort of whims for me. Um, it's a, as I say, it's a big sea change for most companies to think about privacy early in their innovation processes as opposed to going to their security guys or their lawyers and saying, look at this cool thing we've designed, it's okay, right? Um, so that's a real big takeaway for me. So Fatima, this has been eye-opening, jaw-dropping, shocking, and extremely informative and timely. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, you guys, for having me. It was a great conversation, and I look forward to more. Discover how your organization can prepare for GDPR and make privacy your competitive advantage. Fatima will be sharing her latest research on striking the right balance between data-driven opportunity, data security risk, and customers' expectations of privacy at Forrester's new privacy and security forums in the fall. For more information and to reserve your seat, visit for.com slash PS2017. That's F-O-R-R dot slash PS2017.
2017. Thanks for listening.